And if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're in Exodus 12. Exodus 12. In the Kelly home, we have five out of our six birthdays in the months from November to April. So November, December, February, March, April. And in that same span of time, as is the case for all of us, uh, we have Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, Valentine's is sort of a half holiday, and my wife wouldn't mind me saying that. And then you have Easter. And for Desert Springs Church, we also have that holiday we call Claris in there as well, which makes for a busy time. But, but even though the vast majority of our yearly celebrations are on one half of the calendar, I've never begrudged that. I love it. I, I love celebrations. I love birthdays. There's always a twinge of sadness when we get to the end of April, and it will be three and a half months more until Sarah's birthday. I've heard that there are some cultures that don't celebrate birthdays. I guess the Jehovah's Witnesses don't, and many of the Chinese don't. It's certainly not in the Bible whether we have to or can't celebrate birthdays, but we do know that God was for the commemoration and the routine celebration of certain big events. So in the New Testament, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every week, every Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. And we celebrate the death of Jesus every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, which I understand 1 Corinthians 11 to be saying that we have some flexibility as to when and how frequently we do that. Paul says, as often as you partake. So when we do it, it's a celebration of the Lord's death. And in the Old Testament, there were seven different yearly feasts prescribed for God's people. And today, in our study of the book of Exodus, we come to the institution of the first of those feasts called the Passover. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has said that the Passover is the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. The greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. It was both a one-time event and it was also a yearly memorial meal to remember that one-time event. But whether we're talking about the event or the remembrance of it, it is a big deal. And by the way, that's why you know, my son's birthday in a couple of weeks is a big deal to me. It's because he's a big deal to me. And it was a big deal when God gave him to me, as with all my kids. We celebrate things because there is something in the past that's worth remembering and living in light of. And no doubt the Passover is one of those great things. It was the redemptive turning point in the book of Exodus. It is a geographical hinge for the book of Exodus. There's Egypt days and out of Egypt days. The Passover is emblematic for how our God saves, not just on one night, but for millennia to come. And thus the Passover points ahead, as we shall see, to an event and realities that are far bigger than the original Passover or its yearly meal. It reveals way more about the gospel than any other event 
up to this point in our Bibles. In one of the most vibrant and most dynamic books of the Bible, Exodus, today we come to its crux. So let me read the first 42 verses of Exodus 12. It'll take about seven minutes for me to do so, but I want us to see the whole before we begin to break it up into some parts. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your own count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a fast to the Lord, a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But whatever anyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out from the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood and the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land the Lord will give you, as he's promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they left them so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of their dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and couldn't wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all generations. We'll stop there for today. In the big picture of recent chapters, you might notice a subtle shift in the focus of attention now here in chapter 12. Whereas Nine plagues before were directed primarily at the Egyptians, and most of the conversation centered around Pharaoh 
Even with the warning of this final plague in chapter 11, as we saw last week. Well, now in chapter 12, the focus turns to God's people. The Israelites are the clear focus in the beginning and end of what I read. In the middle, verses 29 to 33, the lenses, of course, put squarely on the Egyptians and their great severe judgment. But the Israelites are the primary attention otherwise. What this means is that judgment is now giving way to salvation. Promises of old are now giving way to their fulfillment. Redemption is dawning. It's been a long time coming. 11 chapters before we get to the Passover and them finally departing. It was back at the end of chapter 2 where we read that God had heard the cries of his people and it seemed then that he was about to act. But then you have a few chapters of Moses trying to figure out his calling. And then you have nine plagues over a few chapters more. Finally, now we come to a new day. A new day is dawning. You see verse 2, look at the language there. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. God was giving his people a whole new calendar with this as the beginning because a new day had come. It's like when Jesus' resurrection reoriented the, the calendar of the week for his worship going from Saturday to Sunday. Well, so the Passover, in the Passover, God was saying, this is a new beginning. This is a big deal. And because it's a big deal, it deserves careful attention. So let me suggest four sections to what we read, each with their own unique lesson for us. Four sections, four lessons here. And the first of those will take the longest uh, because it's the most important and most foundational. And the first is this, the need for a substitute sacrifice. Verses 1 to 13, that's the lesson, the need for a substitute sacrifice. Now what's going on is God giving directions to Moses and Aaron about that first Passover night. But there's a need for a substitute sacrifice that is the overarching principle of it. And that assumes universal guilt in Egypt that night. It assumes universal guilt. You see, the threat of death that fateful night was not limited to Egyptians. Because Egyptians were not the only sinners there. Israelites were too. You can see that for, a, for yourself in a passage like Ezekiel 20, which I pointed us to a, a few weeks ago and won't point you to directly this morning, but there we have God's own commentary on the spiritual state of his people at this very time. We could also look at Joshua's comment in Joshua 24, verse 14, when he says then, much later on, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. God's people were not innocent people. The Egyptian idolatry had rubbed off on them, apparently so. 
And even still, we can know something of Israel's guilt at this time from any part of the Bible that describes human sin and human guilt. Like Romans 3, this is true of Israelites and Egyptians. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So that night of the Passover, God's wrath was rightly over Israelites and Egyptians unless God provided a way of escape for his people, and he did. In God's inexplicable, undeserved mercy and kindness, according to his self initiating covenant with Abraham and his offspring. God provided a way for his righteous and just anger and wrath to pass over, that's why it's called Passover, to pass over the homes that trusted him. And that trust was demonstrated in blood being applied to the door frames of that home. It was the blood of the lamb. It must be a, a lamb without blemish, verse 5 says. Now, if your home was too small for one lamb, or if you were too poor to buy one lamb for one meal, you could partner up with the neighbors, that's fine. But the more significant point is the kind of lamb this is it's a lamb without blemish. This introduces for us an idea that will be strung throughout the Bible. The perfect in place of the imperfect. The blameless taking on the blame of another. We call it substitution. One in the place of another. We call it sacrifice. Because the wages or the payment of sin is death, therefore we must die or a sacrifice must die in our place. This was a sign, this blood on the doorposts. It was a sign that that family believed and trusted God. It proved that the sacrifice in the home had already been made. And so when God would come to town on that fateful night, the destroyer, as he's called in verse 23, who is the Lord, verse 29, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. That is who would pass over those homes under the blood, except for the Egyptians who did not do the same. Now, the blood applied to the door frames was not for God. He didn't need to see. He knows what's in, he knows what's in our homes and he knows what's in human hearts. He's not like the UPS driver who doesn't know where to put packages without a list and without labels on those packages. God didn't walk up to any house and say, ooh, careful, not this one. That, that blood's a little light. Uh, you could almost be mistaken for it being an Egyptian house, but it's not. No, God didn't need to see the blood. The blood was a sign for the people. Verse 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you. 
And so it was an act of faith to apply the blood. It was a demonstration of their faith to apply the blood. And it gave a visible, concrete assurance that God would indeed pass over those homes. D.A. Carson, again, he illustrates this with a fictional story surrounding the Passover night. He invites us to imagine two guys chatting that night. And one says to his friend, I don't know about you, but I'm really nervous about this night. The other says, well, didn't you kill the lamb and apply the blood to the door frames like Moses told us to? And he says, yeah, I did. In fact, I got it good and wet just to make sure. But I, I hope that it works. We've seen some crazy things in recent days around here, and I'm not exactly sure what the Lord is up to. And my firstborn son, well, man, I love him. I don't want anything to happen to him. The other man says, well, I say bring it on. I trust God full stop. And Carson asks, which of these men's sons died that night? He says, the answer is, of course, neither. And then he says, it's because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or clarity of their faith, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. Weary faith Christians here today, take heart. It is not the intensity of your faith or the consistency of your faith that saves. It is the object of your faith that saves. And that was true the night of the Passover. And it is even more true when someone comes to believe in and put their trust in that final, perfect substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus Christ. As great as the Passover moment was, its greatest importance for us today is how it foreshadowed another great Passover to come. That's why it's so significant that John the Baptist, so early in John's gospel, points to Jesus. And he says, there, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Revelation has as its favorite name for Jesus, the Lamb 28 times Jesus is called the lamb, and several of those add the modifier, slain. He was the lamb that was slain. Or if that's not enough for you, Paul makes it dead on specific in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That changes everything. And like the Passover lamb in Exodus that needed to be blameless, so Jesus too had to be a perfect sacrifice, not with his lamb's wool, not with his physical features, 
but morally, spiritually, in every way. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1 says. And his sacrifice was so perfect and so powerful that it did far more than bring safety to a home for one night. You see, that's one massive limitation of the Passover lamb. It couldn't, it didn't, it didn't secure eternal salvation. But Christ can and did with one death. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you see that the Bible is primarily about this theme of God's substitutionary sacrifice for human sin? That is as old as God covering Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden with the skins of slain animals. It's as old as God providing for himself a lamb in the place of Isaac. In Genesis 22, it's as old as that fateful night in Egypt with the slain lambs and the bloody door frames. It runs all through the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, which from Hebrews 7, Drew read earlier about this idea of an old system of sacrifices that pointed ahead to the perfect one but couldn't ultimately do much of anything but remind them of their need for a savior. And for millennia, that's what God's people dealt with as they in faith looked beyond those sacrifices for God to fix the sin problem somehow, some way, someday, eternally and perfectly. And he did that in his son, Jesus. Specifically in his cross, in his death and resurrection. This is why all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all climax at the cross. Luke and Matthew, both in their middle points, have this turn. Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. We know the rest of the story, so we know what's in Jerusalem. And we know where he's going and what he's going to do. I wonder what you're trusting in. What are you putting your hope in? If you're not a Christian, know that you need the blood of Christ for God to pass over your guilt and not hold you accountable for it. And if you do not have Christ, he will not pass over. It's as simple as that. But in his mercy... Like those Israelites the night of the first Passover. The Bible never does this, but you can imagine this. Perhaps it's useful. Would you this day receive the blood of Christ and apply it to the door frames of your heart and say, this is my all. I I have no other argument, we sometimes sing. I, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Today, you can apply this blood to your heart by simply acknowledging to God that you are a sinner 
and that you've heard now that Jesus died for sins, simply believe it, confess it, and ask him to receive it. And if you do that in faith, I believe today you might believe and be saved. Now secondly, we see the need for holiness and haste. And haste here doesn't refer to the rest of the sermon, but it sure could. So verses 14 to 20, what go, what's going on here is uh, directions for the yearly feasts. If verses 1 through 13 were about the first Passover night, verses 14 to 20 are going to give directions for the yearly commemoration of those feasts. And I say feasts, plural, because I think there are two in view. You see in verse 14, this day shall be a memorial day. That's Passover. But then verse 17, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. These two feasts overlap. They're heavily related, but they are distinguishable. Passover was a one-day event, and on its heels followed the feast of unleavened bread for one week. As we read already, you saw it, the feast of unleavened bread at its beginning meant that each household went throughout the house rooting out any leaven that might be in the house. No leaven was allowed in the house for the week. And thus their bread that they ate had to be unleavened bread. And what this teaches us is the need for holiness and haste. Let me take each of those one at a time. There's the need for holiness here. It's actually not explicit in Exodus 12, but later passages of the Bible equate leaven with sin. Leaven is like a metaphor for sin because, well, leaven in a lump of bread or dough spreads. So Jesus can say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and he means sin. Or Galatians can say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So get rid of the leaven. Get rid of sin. God's people needed that regular reminder of the need for holiness and the need to root out sin. They also needed the regular reminder of the severity of the problem of unholiness. And that's why the metaphor is played out in such severe terms in Exodus 12. You see verse 15, if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 19 repeats the same thing. You eat leaven during this week of unleaven and you're out. That's it. Why? Why so severe? Well, God is zealous to protect his metaphors in scripture. And that's why on the Sabbath day, you know, no man could pick up a stick on a Saturday because it showed that he was trying to work his way even just a stick's worth to God. Well, no, 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 no. Jesus is our rest. And you can't even bring a stick's worth of righteousness in to the gospel equation with him. And so God told Men and women in the Old Testament, you pick up a stick on the Sabbath day, you're dead. And this one here, this metaphor, you eat leaven 
during this week of unleavened bread, and you're out. It's showing the severity of the problem of unholiness. And of course, we know now that all this terminates on Jesus, who alone was perfectly righteous, like those passages in 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 3 show us. He is our hope for our unholiness. And if you think you don't need his perfect righteousness that you're doing pretty well, you might want to pick up the Feast of Unleavened Bread and see if you can perform just that one little thing for your whole life without violating that. Of course, you will eventually violate that law or some other. But this also shows us something about haste. And here, let me point you down in your Bibles for you to see it for yourself. Look ahead to verse 34, which takes place after that Passover night. And there it says, the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And after that, they, they go out. And once they're out, look at verse 39. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Haste, urgency. Look back at verse 11 regarding the eating of the Passover meal. How was that to be eaten? Well, with your belt fastened, that is with your robe lifted up and tucked into your belt so you can run if you need to, and with sandals on your feet which wasn't the custom of the day inside homes. And even weirder, with your staff in your hand while you eat dinner. And by the way, eat it fast. This is the first fast food. <laughs> and it's as mysterious as some of the fast food that we can find in Albuquerque today. Until we realize this. There's to be no leaven in the houses and no bread, no leavened bread in your mouth, to put it crudely, because we ain't got time for that. We ain't got time for that. That's what this is about. God's people needed to be reminded that when the Lord says, okay, let's roll, you go. God was letting them know in that first Passover, this is the last night. You don't bring food with you. You don't store it for later. And there can be no half-heartedness about leaving Egypt. This is no time for your Cinnabons or your favorite cupcakes. There's nothing wrong with those for 51 weeks out of the year. But going forward, one week of the year, the people needed this dramatic reminder that back when God's people were on the cusp of getting out of Egyptian slavery, they better not be distracted. They better not be half-hearted. They better not delay as if they might want to stay. Do you see what this teaches us about salvation? When God calls us out of our sin into himself by his grace in what we call conversion, getting saved, becoming a Christian. There's no time for delay. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted hour. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but believe. When God calls us out to bring us in, we better not be half-hearted about it as if the pleasures in Egypt compare with the pleasure we have in God. You see what this also teaches us about the nature of the Christian life. You see, he called those Egyptians out of bondage in Egypt. And he's bringing them to a promised land, but they're not there yet. And that's sort of a a metaphor for the whole Christian life. There's a sense in which Christians have been called out of the bondage of the Egypt of their sin, the guilt, but they're not yet to the promised land. Or, or in terms of pilgrim's progress, we have left Vanity Fair and we might be all over the map in the story that Bunyan tells, sometimes in the slew of despond, my favorite destination. But, but the ultimate destination is the celestial city, and that's where we're going. And that's why the New Testament speaks of Christians as sojourners and pilgrims and strangers and aliens and exiles. It's the Christian life. He's called us out. We got staff in hand. We're eating little bites of food on the way, like a a hobbit with their angel food cake, whatever that is. And we're waiting for the day when we finally reach home. By the way, reaching home, do you see what the Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches us about the Lord's return? We have to ask ourselves if we're too comfy in Egypt. We have to ask ourselves sometimes, when is the last time that I actually cried out for the Lord to bring his final deliverance to this body, into this heart, into this world? Do we really want Jesus to come back, let alone come quickly? Are we ready for his return? Do the words of Romans 8 ring true with you that we are waiting eagerly for our final adoption and our final redemption? Well, maybe... The picture of a Jewish family in Egypt the night of the Passover will help you. They got their robes tucked into their belts, sandals on, staffs in hand. They're ready to go. Thirdly, there's the need for remembrance through ritual. Remembrance through ritual. Now, verses 21 to 28, what's happening there is that the directions are being passed along. Directions uh, for the fateful night and then directions for the yearly meals. Moses and Aaron got those directions from the Lord in the previous verses, but now Moses passes on those directions, verse 21, to the elders of Israel, and presumably these elders would then pass it on to the heads of households. Dads, You see it in verse 26 and 27. This is how it's going to play out in specific homes and for generations to come. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, 
Oh, this is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And notice at the end of verse 27, here's the response to hearing those directions and hearing what's to come in conversations with children and their parents. It says the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This isn't the only way the good news of the glorious saving God gets passed along in this world, but it is a significant way from God to a prophet, maybe through elders, to dads, perhaps single moms, and to their children, and to their children, and to their children, and to their children, until the Lord returns. Isn't it beautiful? Take note that God gives his people both scripture and symbol, or ritual, if you prefer that word, to symbol. Ritual is what's going on here in this Passover meal celebrated and then explained year after year. God has always worked this way and still does today. God gives a scripture and God ordained symbols or rituals that highlight and visualize what the words of the scripture say. Not rituals without instruction or explanation, neither rituals and instruction divorced from passion and experience. They bowed their heads and worshiped. Or in the language that we find in uh, Psalm 145, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The, the parents will meditate on God's glorious splendor and majesty, and then they will speak of the might of God's awesome deeds and declare his greatness, and together they will pour forth the fame of God's abundant goodness. So God gives Scripture, he gives symbol, and he should ideally also direct mom and dad in a way that they represent scripture and symbol to their kids with great joy, something very personal and experiential. But don't forget the ritual. In his divine pedagogy, I know that's a clumsy phrase, divine pedagogy, but you get it. In his divine pedagogy, he's given us action and explanation, the visual and the verbal. This is his plan. Now, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, these feasts get transformed, don't they? Like the sacrifices, the feasts get transformed. Uh, we get this from Colossians 2, where Paul speaks of festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They pointed ahead to Christ, and now we have symbols that more directly describe and visualize Christ. 
like baptism and the Lord's Supper, the only two we have in the new covenant. We have two signs. We must keep that very clear. We don't need to add seven feasts to our Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the meal that most directly points back to Christ's death and to our salvation. Remember, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And we see that, of course, in Scripture and also in the symbol of broken bread and spilled blood. We'll partake of our Lord's Supper uh, this coming Friday at our Good Friday service. So I hope this sets that up well for you and you come with added anticipation to celebrate the, the new and better Passover that we have in Christ. But for now, we can draw from the broader principle of Exodus 12 that there's a need for remembrance through ritual. God's people are forgetful people. We need remembering. We need reminding. The, the words remember and remembrance and remind in the converse forgetfulness and forgetting, they are everywhere in the Bible. They are, they are the front lines of the battle between sin and righteousness, between worship and foolishness. Just one example. I could give a hundred examples of this, but... Psalm 106, when it comments on that great sin later on in Exodus of the people making a golden calf to worship, Psalm 106 says, They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. He had done wondrous works and awesome deeds. Now, they didn't totally forget. They didn't say, Oh, yeah, I forgot about Egypt. No, it's, it's not like me forgetting milk or you forgetting your shoelaces, perhaps, if you're really forgetful. But this is, this is spiritual amnesia, you could say. It's when remembrance isn't forefront. Remember in the Bible doesn't just mean to recall things, but to rehearse things, to consider things, to ponder things, to celebrate them, to remind others, to, to write it down, to memorize it. This is what the rich Hebrew word zakar or remember means in the Bible. We need to, we need to remember we need to remember what God did long ago, what he's doing today, that we might live in light of it ourselves, pass it on to others, especially our kids, especially when they ask, what's that about? Don't wait for that. But when they ask, take full advantage of it. Now, it's useful to distinguish between the rituals that the Bible prescribes and commands for us, and those other things which can really be good habits for your specific family. With the latter, we're not going to all agree on how to do that. With the former, we're, we're going to agree on how to do that. This one is essential. These are really important, and you should take time to think through what are our habits and what are our rituals and, and when do we pray? Why did we give up praying before meals as if we needed to do less praying? 
Someone told me it wasn't in the Bible, and so I stopped praying before meals. And, well, I'm praying less. Well, maybe there's a habit you could pick up again, or Bible before bed, or prayer on the way to church. You, you might say, Ryan, we are arguing in the car on the way to church. Then pray. Dads, lead out, pray the whole way there. And guess what? No fight broke out. Or talk of the sermon on the way home from church. Think through what your day-to-day habits and rhythms as a family are. But keep the rhythm, the rhythms of the Bible, first and foremost in your heart. The rhythm of the Lord's Day every seven days. Because we need it. We can't go an eighth day. The rhythm of the Lord's Supper when we do that together as a church. We need remembrance through rituals. And fourthly, in our passage, there's the certainty of death and deliverance. And here we finally come to that actual event, the Passover night. Let's just read it again. Verse 28, 29, and 30. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Just take that in in your imagination. Never get used to this scene Never read through it and not let it catch your breath. And allow yourself to ask and to ponder the questions that you know you want to ask. How? How, God? Why? I like kids. I thought you liked kids, God. Well, some things we can keep in mind as we wrestle with those kinds of questions. Consider, for instance, God's amazing patience in his repeated warnings that preceded this fateful night. It was back in Exodus 4 that Moses was told that he's going to go to Pharaoh and he's going to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And so you let my son go that he may worship me, and if you do not, I will kill your firstborn son. Don't forget that with most of the plagues, there was warning before the plague. There was delay before it started. Consider God's amazing patience. Consider also that this judgment, like the nine previous plagues, was also a judgment on Egyptian gods. Remember that from the previous plagues, the Nile River was itself thought to be a god, and frogs, well, all their gods were were frog-like, and God was judging and mocking the false gods of Egypt in those plagues. And here, he is judging the idol, even of firstborn sons. Oh, that couldn't be, could it? Kids, an idol? 
not just in our culture, even more in Egyptian culture, even more so with a pharaoh who would have thought of his line as divine. He would have thought of his firstborn son as a god in the waiting. God was shaking all that up and showing how stupid it is. We should also see that God's judgment in Exodus 12 is partly recompense for Pharaoh's institutional infanticide of male Hebrew children back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember, there was a program of infanticide and God was responding in kind. This still takes our breath away, but we're reminded the simple phrase from Paul, behold the severity and kindness of God. Behold it. Don't turn away from it. Don't deny it. Behold his severity and his kindness. In the Passover night, God was doing both judgment and mercy. This is what he planned all along, to show himself mighty, to save a people for himself, and to rightly condemn and judge and expose idolatrous sin for what it is. There's a great certainty to all that's happening here. So many promises are now finally being fulfilled. God promised back in chapter 3, I'm going to do a bunch of signs on Pharaoh, and then he will let you go. And that's what happens here. He lets them go. Go, he says. And this time, no bartering, no renegotiating, and, and even no wavering, at least for now. And so they go. And they go with stuff. Isn't that great? The plundering of the Egyptians in verse 35 and 36 was actually promised back in Genesis 15, that long ago. It was also promised in Exodus 3 that God would give them favor with their neighbors so that when they asked for their stuff, they would just say, you bet, man. If you're going out there in the wilderness, here, take this. It's funny that it's called plundering here. You almost want to put it in air quotes. They plundered the Egyptians. Usually plundering happens with a sword. But here they just said, hey, that's a cool necklace. Can I have it? And they said, sure. Because that was God's plan. 600,000 men, besides women and children, maybe two to three million, heading out of Egypt one fateful Morning, A mixed multitude was with them. What's that? Well, maybe some Egyptian said, I'm going with these guys. Apparently so. They were thrust out in a hurry, just as God told them to. What a kindness that the Lord had the Egyptians thrust them out in a hurry so that none would be distracted and wanting to stay. And this comes to the close of 430 years of Egypt. And just notice in verse 42, this great summary statement, what a summary it is. It, it was a night of watching by the Lord. And so the Passover now, for, for years to come, it was a night of watching to be kept to the Lord. I think we can look back similarly 
The Lord has watched over us in so many ways. We have so much to celebrate. Not just birthdays. Not just the, the first Passover, as great as that was. Not just the Red Sea, which is coming soon. But the Passover Christ, slain upon the cross, risen the third day. As we'll sing in just a minute here. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. We have been watched by the Lord night after night. Especially in our salvation. May we watch for the Lord night after night until Jesus comes. May it be a watching unto the Lord for his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We stand in awe of your glory and power. And Lord, we are glad recipients of your glorious grace. We want others to join us in that. Lord, perhaps as we sing a song about our Savior, perhaps today you would illuminate this, cause it to make sense in the minds and hearts of some here who before they couldn't see it, they didn't hear it, they didn't get it, didn't want to. Lord, be glorified to help us all see our sin, rejoice in the Savior and give you praise for glorious things that you've done. Amen.